Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colbrook. Today I'll be speaking with Katie Batzer, author of Before AIDS, Gay Health Politics in the 1970s, published in 2018 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Batzer uncovers the history of gay health politics in the 1970s, challenging the notion that the gay community was unprepared for the AIDS epidemic. Focusing on three health clinics in Boston, Chicago and Los Angeles, Batzer examines how the nascent gay health movement interacted with doctors, social movements and the state. Katie, welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for having me. Great, great to have you on here. So I'd like to begin by asking you about your own intellectual background and what brought you to the topic of the gay health movement. Sure. Uh, So uh, there's a short version and a long version. Uh, I came out when I was very, very young and I went to the library and there were no um, history books at all on LGBT history. And so I knew that that was something that I wanted to do because I was a, a, a big history fan from my first history course when I was like 12. Uh, and so um, fast forward about 10 years and I find myself getting ready to go to graduate school in Chicago. And um, I knew that I wanted to do something that looked at the intersection of health and politics um, and sexuality. And every day on my way to school, to class, I passed by this place called the Howard Brown Health Clinic. It took me a couple months to realize that it was specifically for the LGBTQ community. And uh, I just became fascinated by the potential history of this space. And eventually uh, that became where my research, it, it kind of drew me to this topic. Mm-hmm. So it's really uh, been fermenting for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so your introduction uh, charts some of the research challenges you faced examining these institutions, mm. um, especially sort of incomplete archival records. I was wondering if you just describe for us how you overcame these challenges and what methodologies you used to do that. Yeah, so uh, it it was extremely difficult, actually. Um, the archival records for these clinics, these, I mean, in today's world, we wouldn't we wouldn't really think of them as clinics. We would think of them as like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? This is where you want me to go get my medical care. Uh, but but folks were really desperate to provide um, gay friendly and knowledgeable healthcare back then, and so it was often you know, a very slapdash organization where medical records were kept on index cards. And um, the idea of having some sort of organizational record keeping was really an afterthought at best. And then marry that to the reality that AIDS came shortly after these clinics kind of finally became institutionalized and, and strong enough and, and had a, a clear sense of, oh, we, we should be billing people and, and we should keep records, these sorts of things. Then they met the, uh, the AIDS crisis where space constraints became real in terms of where were they going to keep all of the patient files and all of the information. And for a number of, of the sites that I looked at, the answer was they were just going to pitch the, the, the historic stuff. And so, you know, for Fenway here in Boston, for example, there really was just one or two small file folders um, with articles of incorporation and not much more beyond that. And mm. so um, it was a daunting task. And actually my dissertation advisor, he kind of made me prove that there was enough out there before he, uh, he granted me permission to move forward with the project. And it took me two years to kind of scrounge up enough. Um, so I did a lot of oral interviews. I started out by um, finding the archives that I could 
uh, and then reading tons of newspapers, um, gay newspapers, straight newspapers, um, medical journals, um, and really trying to piece together who the main characters were and who, who was talking to newspapers, um, who were publishing medical findings, um, and then kind of going from there and having a snowball effect of interviews and looking at people's personal papers and, you know, gaining access to people's uh, closets and basements and attics. Um, and it was, um, a a long haul. It was, um, very humbling. Um, and it was also incredibly rich and meaningful, um, way to, to write my, my first meaningful historical research, um, because I really had to build relationships with these people in order to tell the history. Uh, and so it was very challenging. Um, I, I tried the best that I could to use whatever available, um, archives at universities and things like that, but really it was very rare, um, for me to have access to archives as most historians think of them where they're cataloged and, um, you know, you can just look up the finding aid, things like that. That was, that was not my reality. There were points where I was literally trying to follow people through, you know, different years worth of phone books to see if I could find their most up-to-date phone number. Great. So I have uh, two sort of completely unrelated follow-up questions to that, which is uh, who was your dissertation supervisor and how did you go about securing oral interviews? Yes. So uh, my dissertation advisor was the amazing and wonderful uh, John D'Amelio. I was very fortunate to be one of his graduate students. Um, And he was very supportive, but also didn't want to give permission for something that ultimately just didn't have enough, um, you know, research or material there to actually support what what I needed to do. Uh, And then in terms of how did I secure all the interviews, I, I, I begged. I really did. I, um, <laughs> there were a number of, of times where I would just uh, cold call people. You know, a, a lot of this research kind of happened pre Facebook um, and um, pre smartphone. Um, the internet obviously existed, but it was a little bit uh, tricky to get those initial interviews. And then once I had the hook of one person and, and tried to tell them about the history that I was, I was wanting to tell, um, people would pass along the names of their friends or sometimes would even, you know, call them up while I was there and say, Hey, so-and-so is, is here. You should just come over. And so all of a sudden, you know, this interview that I would prep for would turn into an interview with three other completely different people. And it was, um, a challenge, but sometimes that was the way that I just had to roll with it. And, uh, it, it was interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, great. So, your introduction and chapter one sort of outlines some of the context for the rise of these uh, gay health clinics. So I was wondering what historically the gay community's relationship was like with the medical profession. Oh, yeah. I mean, fraught is um, is putting it nicely. I think that there is a well-deserved uh, skepticism and fear among uh today's LGBTQ community, but certainly the 1970s iteration of the gay community around interactions with medical professionals. Uh, Up until 1973 here in the U.S., um, homosexuality was still seen as a um, a mental illness. And so generally, if you went to a doctor and said that you were gay, 
um, that would become the reason that you came to the doctor in the eyes of the medical professional that you were talking to, regardless of whether you were actually going because you were sick in some other way, you know, um, and so, uh, and the treatments that, that some doctors would prescribe were just horrendous across the 20th century. I mean, there's cases of castration or chemical castration and um, uh, electroshock therapy and all of these sorts of things. And so uh, people were very reluctant to actually go to the doctor uh, and, and doubly so to go to the doctor and come out, which had serious implications for their sexual health. Mm. So how did the gay community respond to this stigmatization? Uh, Well, a couple of things. I mean, there's been some interesting work around trying to get um, the history of trying to get the, the, the diagnostic statistical manual that doctors used um, to diagnose mental health uh, disorders um, to try and get homosexuality removed from that. So that happens in 1973 and that's a big deal. But Really, what happens is, from what I notice in my in my book, there are two angles. One is that um, gay activists really try and kind of politicize the concept of health and make it part of gay liberation. Another way that folks go around go about kind of challenging mainstream medicine is by kind of infiltrating it from from within. Uh, so people that are coming out as gay are also in medical school and wanting and seeing their friends in the gay community struggling with different things and wanting to know why they're not learning how to actually treat these real life illnesses um, and, and going about it that way. So they, um, they kind of take on medicine straight ahead by saying we're this big activist group and we're going to challenge it in all these other ways. And then there are also those that are kind of working undercover and trying to, um, make the mainstream medical organizations, professional organizations more gay friendly and, and kind of queering it from the inside in a way. Mm. So you uh, you mentioned gay liberation there and your history takes place in the 1970s. Um, so I was wondering uh, in the sort of post-Stonewall world, how the ideology of gay liberation interacted with the politics of health and the health clinics you, you describe. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. So I, I looked at kind of three major um, case studies for the the book, and um, one LA really embraces the notion of gay liberation and, and really uh, kind of puts it puts their activism as a, a frame, and it also echoes the activism that's happening elsewhere in Los Angeles at the time. So they really borrow this notion of. Um, of access to like they use this term oppression sickness that they actually borrow from uh, uh, black Panthers and um, other kind of the Brown berets and even the feminist women's health movement are all kind of using different iterations of this notion of oppression as a form of sickness Um, to, to equate the, the push for gay liberation as also a push for access to healthcare um, and access to just being able to live healthy lives without being pathologized or without being denied healthcare or uh, access to um, quality, well-paying jobs that also allow for higher quality life. And so um, that's how LA kind of 
relates itself to gay liberation. It very much embraces it. Chicago, that's where most of the doctors are kind of secretly coming out in their nightlives and then kind of working behind the scenes in medical schools. Um, and gay liberation is, is, is kind of a secondary thought. It's more about medicine um, and being doctors. And then Boston is a, is a totally different case study where gay liberation is happening, sure, but the people who start the Fenway Clinic here in Boston um, are actually doing so out of a, a push against gentrification of a neighborhood where gay people happen to live. It's a very uh, racially and sexually diverse neighborhood uh, in Boston, and it's set to be raised and replaced with higher income um, housing units. And so they create a whole bunch of different community organizations to kind of push back against that. And the clinic is one of them. And within that clinic, they decide to include some gay health services, but they never really embrace the notion of gay liberation. And they never, and they don't actually claim the identity as a gay clinic until into the 1980s, actually. And so it just is a community clinic in this, in this funny way. Whereas now when we think of Fenway Clinic, uh, nationally, they're one of the the biggest LGBTQ health organizations in the country. Mm, fantastic. Uh, so the history you described parallels developments uh, in the feminist and civil rights movements as they also begin to politicize health. So I was wondering uh, how did these gay health clinics interact with other social movements of the 1960s and 1970s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this is where the individual people really matter, right? We think about these big movements as kind of their own monolithic entities that make huge decisions and operate on their own. But really what my research finds that they're individual people who are the kind of catalysts of ideas from one place to another place, from one group or movement to another movement. And so certainly in Los Angeles uh, and in Boston, that's what I see happening is that there are individual people who have been involved in the civil rights movement and have ties to kind of um, black nationalism or um, are well acquainted with the feminist women's health movements and their different iterations. And that translates to meetings that they have um, in their neighborhoods or around other health issues that eventually materialize as these gay health clinics. Mm-hmm. Great. So your uh, third chapter sort of intervenes into debates historians have about how sexual minorities interacted with the state, uh, which has been a sort of flourishing area of scholarship in the last 10 years or so. So I was sort of wondering, first of all, how gay health clinics interact with the state and also how uh, your book adds to and revises uh, the concept of the straight state articulated by Margot Canaday. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting story, and I'm a huge fan of Margot Kennedy's work. And I am I, uh, I I it's a slight revision. It's not necessarily like a. I'm not saying that she's wrong. I I want to be very clear about that. Uh, I think that the state generally operates as a very oppressive force for sexual minorities. However, within the cases of these clinics and the 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 creation of a, a national medical infrastructure um, for gay men and lesbians in the 1970s, 
we see the state having a pretty important role. Um, and it's very contested at the, at the individual site level at times where um, some of the activists don't want to have any relationship with the state. And yet the, the people who are actually running these clinics realize that state funding is the way that they're going to stay open and viable over time. And the state has this very interesting relationship where it definitely doesn't want to encourage, you know, queerness or, um, gay sexuality, and yet they see these individual clinics as very important public health sites that are treating um, cases of venereal diseases that otherwise go untreated. And so it, the state is trying to do this dance where it wants to stay at an arm's length, but also nurture this. Meanwhile, from the, the activist side, they want to provide the health care, but also not be closely associated with the state. And so over the course of the 1970s and into the early 1980s, each of the three case studies that I study have kind of a, a different evolution of their relationship with the state. Some of them immediately say, yes, we want to try and apply for all of these federal grants ASAP, and we'll just assume that we can do our own thing um, and, and and keep it radical and activist-y um, at, the, at the site of, you know, providing services. Um, other places really try and keep the state out of um, – out of their operations as much as possible to the point, to the extent that like the, the Fenway clinic in Boston doesn't even have its uh, clinic approved by um, the licensing organization for clinics until 1978. It magically figures out how to operate all that time from 71 to 78 with very little state funds. And so, um, but the, the, the writing on the wall becomes pretty clear. If these clinics want to maintain viability, they need access to federal grants. And over the course of the 1970s, as the state under Nixon becomes kind of more of this um, kind of controlling force and, and a neoliberal force, these sites be- are forced to conform to certain expectations um, around how they're organized and how they uh, what they do with their funding and that sort of thing. So my point with, in terms of Margot Kennedy's concept of the straight state is yes, it is a straight state and it's certainly an anti-queer state. Um, but it also plays a very important role in the creation of gay health organizations and, um, in the 1970s in particular, uh, through the use of federal grants and kind of arm twisting and regulations uh, around that money. Mm-hmm. Great. So uh, you've outlined already the uh, really fraught relationship between the gay community and um, sort of the medical profession, which is very much a sort of impetus for the, uh, the starting of these clinics. How, when they are, once they're set up, did they interact with quote unquote mainstream medical institutions? Yeah, I think um, I think all of the activists across the board. I mean, they wanted to create gay-friendly spaces, but they also wanted to eventually not be necessary. Um, and what that would mean is making mainstream medicine um, more knowledgeable about LGBTQ health needs or gay health needs at the time, right? So um, they to varying degrees and to varying capacities, they engage mainstream medicine as much as possible. 
um, whether it's by trying to do research studies and and publish in research journals so that um, existing doctors outside of these gay clinics can learn how to better treat um, gay patients, or whether it's by creating um, caucuses within most of the um, medical professional organizations that are specifically for gay and lesbian members so that they can find community, but also do the work of educating their straight colleagues. Um, So by the end of the decade, we see a number of important shifts. One is that these gay professional organizations exist in almost every single um, facet of medical professional organizations, um, whether it's the AMA or the American Public Health Association or so all of those different um, kind of specialized areas. Um, But we also see strong relationships built with the CDC and even with pharmaceutical companies and um, certainly with one another so that there is a robust infrastructure in place uh, to try and um, help mainstream medicine understand gay health needs better and have easier access to the education that they, that they need. Mm. So how did this shift affect the relationship between doctors and the gay community when the AIDS epidemic uh, hit in 1981 onwards? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, right? So it's hard, it's hard to say like, oh, all doctors everywhere knew more. I think that um, doctors that were dealing with gay patients for the first time had access to um, journal articles and whatnot to kind of help navigate that relationship. But the reality is, is that AIDS was something nobody, nobody saw. I mean, They saw it coming. A number of the doctors that I spoke with kind of said, we knew something was coming, we just didn't know what it was. And so, um, you know, I think doctors who were trying to treat gay patients in the early AIDS crisis were so overwhelmed by what AIDS even was that the the sexuality of their patients was was just one part of a really confusing and um, impossible to really grasp a problem that they were facing in terms of like an epidemiological puzzle. And so, um, and the information that was available to them about how to treat gay patients and where to look for things, um, it helped, but also AIDS was just, uh, you know, a complete lacuna. It was an unknown. Mm. Okay, so how did the uh, the community community clinics uh, themselves respond to the AIDS epidemic, and what were sort of the the key successes for them in this moment, um, quote unquote success, and the failures as well? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I think the quote unquote success says a lot, right? Uh, the reality is is that gay health clinics didn't have some sort of special elixir that solved the AIDS crisis. Obviously, what they did do though is they were the front lines. They were the places where um, community members turned. Uh, they wanted to know what was happening, and they were providing. Um, informational sessions. They were the sites that straight doctors would turn to. Um, there's an interesting story of, uh, in the early 1980s Fenway, which is 
literally a basement clinic off of an alley, off of a small side street in Boston. It does not look like a, wow, I really want to go get my health care there kind of place at this time. And yet in the early AIDS crisis, doctors from Harvard and from the CDC are heading into this basement to see how they're trying to do treatments, what kind of support services they're offering. Um, they're doing a lot of um, kind of hospice level care, palliative care, um, where, and also where they learn how to support the doctors and the healthcare providers that are providing, you know, care to patients that they can't save. And so these clinics provide, um, really the, the, the frontline support of just trying to respond to this. They were the ones that were seen as um, the allies to LGBTQ community, and they did have access to relationships that they had nurtured with, you know, doctors and research institutions across the country. And so they were often the ones that found the first aid cases in the cities and the regions where they operated. And they were the ones that made phone calls to the CDC and kind of helped put things together of what was happening and what it looked like. Um, And then it became quite clear, even though there were significant funding cuts, those relationships within the CDC and the NIH and big pharma were relationships that were very important in terms of, you know, um, figuring out where to do drug trials and how to roll it out and um, have communications about drug pricing when it became available. And, um, you know, these were important lines of communications that started in the 1970s, uh, but definitely, I mean, still remain intact today in many of the places. Great. So just asking a slightly broader question, there's sort of a standard narrative often for how the gay rights movement develops in the, the 1970s, which is, gay liberation after Stonewall and then slowly across the 1970s activists uh, kind of mainstream the movement become quote-unquote more respectable and that initial radicalism wears off although there are some historians who have uh, written great works which challenge that chronology. Um, How does your work interact uh, slash revise uh, how we conceive of the gay rights movement in the 1970s? Mm, yeah. So this sort of declension narrative of radicalism, I think that um, that oversimplifies what is happening. I think that the activists that I looked at were practical people, um, right? Uh, doctors are often very practical. They want to solve a problem uh, that someone's facing and make their lives a little bit easier, generally speaking. And so it's not surprising that these clinics operate in much the same way um, where they look at the world around them. And, you know, we know that the shift over the 1970s and into the 1980s politically, money becomes harder. Uh, Politics become more conservative. Um, Concerns about sexuality, particularly after the AIDS epidemic uh, rears its head, um, it, it becomes very sticky. And so for these activists, it's more about how to survive, um, and how to, remain intact and be able to serve these communities in the ways that they can. And so from the outside, sure, you could say that they're becoming um, less radical. Um, but I actually think that their decisions that they make, that their, you know, their board meetings and, and 
huge discussions and debates within these organizations where they're really thinking strategically about their choices and with eyes wide open of, is it better to shut the doors or is it better to stay open even if we have to make some of these ideological compromises that we know we don't believe in? Um, and so it's more an issue of, of kind of practicality and, and um, how to stay open. I think my sense is that a number of these organizations, obviously since the 1970s and 1980s, have become much more kind of uh, corporatized and they're huge mammoth organizations that have multi-million dollar budgets often. Um, but my sense is that as they were making those decisions in the 1970s and 80s, they're they were doing it with their eyes wide open about what the implications would be. Uh, and, and they, you know, they swallowed the, the good with the bad because they, they knew that what the services that they were offering were more important, um, were too important to just let go. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the program today, Katie. That was a fascinating conversation. Uh, we just have time to ask you one more question, which is what are you working on now? Uh, what am I working on now? Um, I am writing a book about the um, the early AIDS response in the U.S. heartland. Uh, we know a lot about what was happening in New York and what was happening in San Francisco. We don't know a lot about what was happening in the middle of the country. Um, and it turns out it's quite a different um, and, and complex story. Um, so I'm working on that. And I'm also um, working on a reproductive justice history walking tour and podcast of Boston uh, somewhere wow. excitingly. So that's what I'm doing this summer. Uh, but then I'll, I'll return back to my, my book project uh, in the fall. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on right now. And I'm excited about it. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of uncovering new aspects of, of this history and, and following through some of the themes that I uncover in the first book. Great. Well, as someone who also researched, researches the AIDS crisis. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that research. Thanks again for being on the program. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This was a lot of fun and, uh, and thanks for reading the book.